Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to a special edition of the All Sport Podcast. I'm Chief Editor Kevin Turner. And we're talking about a very special car today. It's 60 years since the Jaguar E-Type made its competition debut at Alton Park uh, and had a rather special result. It was the start, of course, of uh, a very famous car's life, probably more famous as a road car. Uh, but we thought uh, this would be a good opportunity to talk about Jaguar E-Types in motorsport and for that, I've got two very special guests. The first is a leading commentator at UK Tracks, well, and elsewhere, but also he was at this Alton Park meeting and he owns a road going Jaguar e so we had to have him on here. So, welcome, Ian Titchmarsh. Hello, everybody. Yes, that's what you've just said is, is accurate, Kevin. Like also, always is. We try, we try. Don't always succeed, but we do, we do try. Um, and I'm sure Ian won't mind me uh, saying that my second guest um, will give even more insight into uh, racing Jaguar E-types because he has, well, actually we should ask him how many he has raced. I bet he probably struggled to come up with the answer. Just a few days ago, he won yet another race in uh, a Jaguar E-type at Donington Park. It's Gary Pearson. Welcome, Gary, to the All Sport Podcast. I bet it was good to get back out there again. It was great, great just to blow the cobwebs away and uh, get to get around Donington, which uh, which is a fabulous circuit for an E-Type anyway, because it's a handling circuit. It's nice to get going again this year. Yes, we've all been waiting uh, longer than normal, haven't we, to get action back underway. So hopefully things will now improve gradually for the rest of, of 2021. But um, So, well, let's start in the obvious place. At the beginning, uh, Alton Park, April 15th, 1961. There were two Jaguar E-Types. Uh, one in the hands of Roy Salvadori, the other in the hands of Graham Hill. Uh, and reading the All Sport report, which we will be running on allsport.com again, just uh, sort of a bit of, of for people to revisit that. Uh, they weren't actually expected to win. They weren't on pole, but they did dominate the race, really. So, Ian, can you perhaps talk us through the talk us through the race and give us an insight into what kind of impact those cars made? Well, the impact was first made when they appeared a few weeks, or yes, two appeared, didn't they, at Geneva, the Geneva Motor Show in the middle of March. And this was only well less than a month later. Um, and from a personal perspective, I mean, Gary's too young to remember this. But let's just clear the air. Gary, when were you first aware of the E-Type Jaguar as a creation? I would say 1964, very young, four years old. But the old man was Peter Sutcliffe's mechanic who had one of the lightweight yes. E-Types as brand new. So when I was four to five years old, I'd have been sort of trying to polish this thing. We'll come to that, the lightweight E-type. And so a four-year-old Gary, um, I, I was a little bit older than that, 
when I went to Alton Park. The first attempt to get there for practice day was thwarted by a lady in a, a, a laundry van who came out. I, I passed my driving test three days earlier and was driving with a friend to um, Alton Park to watch practice on the Friday. And um, this lady, unfortunately, came out of a side road on the right, and I couldn't avoid her, so I never got to Alton Park that day. But my father was very... The car was too badly damaged to drive there the following day. But anyway, father said, you can go on the coach. So I got a coach from Liverpool um, to Alton Park. Um, and there were the two E-types. It was a 4-3-4 grid, so they were on the front row, even though they were third and fourth fastest. Um, and there was uh, the... A Keep Endeavour car in its dark blue, ECD 400, which has probably been through Gary's hands at some point. Uh, and there was the John Coombs car. Uh, and what's the official name of that colour, Gary, that that car is in? Battleship Grey, wasn't it? And that was uh, being driven by Graham Hill. Uh, and the opposition consisted principally of Innes Island in uh, an Aston Martin DB4 GT uh, and Jack Sears in the two, 250 GT Berlinetta. And I was interested to discover the other day, whilst uh, looking up things for this, that that was the first time Jack had ever raced a Ferrari, um, and uh, it was on the front row. So uh, the race began, and I think it was yes. There's a picture on the front page, on the front cover of Autosport, even um, of uh, Roy Salvadorian by one leading Graham Hill in ECD 400, uh, uh, and that's how it was. And the two of them just pulled away from the Aston Martin and the Ferrari and Islands and Jack Sears um, and ran nose to tail. It was a wonderful sight. I mean, this great looking car, uh, and which had only everyone become aware of uh, really a few weeks earlier uh, in the first two places. As the race went on, uh, if you believe autosport and having several have said earlier, I think I'll have to believe autosport, um, it, it was fading brakes on Roy Salvadori's car that caused him to, I think I read somewhere that he only got new brake pads on the front, whereas Graham Hill had new brake pads after practice all around the car. Um, so he had the slightly better brakes. Anyway, that was Roy Salvadori's explanation for why he lost the lead. Um, again, Motoring News and autosport don't agree on this. Um, I, but my memory is hearing the commentator at Nickerbrook say, that uh, Graham Hill had outbreak Salvadorian to Nickerbrook, which in those days was not no chicane, it was just a very fast right-hand corner. Uh, and uh, in Mercury News, it said that uh, Roy Salvadorian had a sticking throttle, um, and that's why he didn't accelerate hard enough out of, um, what was it called in those days, Esso, not Shell Oils, Esso hairpin. Uh, and anyway, Graham took the lead, Roy hung on for a bit, and then fell away and eventually in asylum with a couple of laps to go, got ahead. So it was an E-type first and third. But I'll never forget it, not because I crashed my father's car on the way to the circuit the day before, but because this wonderful looking car, I, I'd already sent off to Jaguar for the, uh, the, the folder of leaflets and so on about the E-type Jaguar. And eventually one day was able to buy one. But it, it was just a, a wonderful occasion. And Autosport didn't give it a green cover, Kevin. You'll have to justify that i suppose because it was only a national meeting it wasn't an international meeting um so the e-type didn't actually qualify for a, a green autosport cover had they gone on to win le mans for example in 1962 which uh, we we'll perhaps get to later i'm sure that would have got a green cover but no probably winning a winning a national race because it was largely british drivers as well of course it wasn't really an international event probably that might have been autosport overdoing it overcooking it i think perhaps if it had gone green on that particular that particular report I also have my lap chart here. I don't know if there's any way you can see this, but um, it's a complete lap chart of the whole race from uh, standing on the inside of Lodge Corner, just in sort of the bottom of Deer Leap. And it, it has accurately recorded every car on every lap of that race. Unbelievable. But, um, there it is. Uh, so it, it shows actually that car five, which was Roy Salvadori, led until lap 12. And it was lap 13, actually, which was unlucky for him. He was passed by, uh, by Graham Hill. I would expect nothing less from a youthful to be honest. <laughs> I, well, I just passed my driving test, 17. So, Gary, we've already sort of heard that your first uh, contact with Utah was through your, through your father. And obviously, you've gone on, uh, yeah, Jaguars, um, both driving them and preparing them have been, uh, I guess, have been your life, really. So, what does the, the E-Type mean to you? And are there any sort of highlights or particularly key cars that have passed through your hands over the um, years? A highlight, definitely, was... Um, in the mid-90s, uh, we used to look after cars for a guy called David Pinnell, and he revived the, the Grover Autosport three-hour race at Snetterton. And at that time, he had just bought the 
low drag cut 70 type that Prothero, Dick Prothero made famous, uh, which was the the last of the cut sevens that he raced, which was effectively a full lightweight E-type, but with a thin gauge steel body uh, in the low drag trim, very effective car. And um, I got to race that with Richard Atwood, who was a friend through, I used to work for Davy Piper in my early 20s and sort of like covering old ground with the old man because the old man used to sort of do a bit of work for David back in the late 60s even. Um, so through that, I got to know Richard quite well anyway. Um, and then to actually get to share a car with him, and we did we did quite a bit together And because David Pennell, he wanted to do a few of these three-hour races. We did some spa and all sorts of other things. He also owned a Lister Jaguar. So for whatever reason... I generally started the races and then handed over to Richard and it taught me a great deal about trying to be quick in a car without wearing it out because the last thing I was going to do was it's easy to do in a Lister and an E-Type is, is, is wear the brakes out. You can, you can be fast for 10 laps um, and then have no brakes for the next two and a half hours. So the last thing I was going to do was give Richard a car that he was going to struggle with. So yeah, that, that, that taught me a really valuable lesson. For, you know, for, for, for most of what I've done since then. And Richard knew a thing or two about looking after machinery as well, didn't he, for long distances? He, he was quite handy over a long distance. He was quite handy over, over a Grand Prix distance as well. Yeah, fantastic driver, fantastic driver, and such a such a proper, nice bloke as well. Gary, was that the first E-Type you raced? What was the, can you remember your first I think first that was probably it, to be honest. The old man, had, he, he had some fabulous, right. he's had some fabulous Jaguars, fabulous cars. He had, he had some he had some good e types. Um, he raced um, the ex Jack Lambert car for quite a few years. Um, oh, yeah. I never raced that one. I was too young. I did drive it on a circuit on a on a test day, um, but I'm I'm pretty sure the Cut Seven was the first first e type I raced. And, uh, yeah, in fairly illustrious company as well, so there's no pressure. I was at that meeting. I, I seem to remember watching it from the pits. Yes, it was a. Mm, I think we finished second in the end. We, yeah. We, yes, we, we did. Uh, there was a safety car. We 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 made a pit stop under the safety car, and it was the wrong choice. We 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 lost time. We ended up running second. But yeah, good fun. Now, of course, you set yourself the challenge of driving two E types in the same race. <laughs> did it last weekend at um, at Donington. I was sharing. Um, chairing an E-type with uh, young Alex Brundle, so seem to have forged a habit now of driving E-types with very experienced and very very quick long-distance drivers. Um, Alex is a good kid. He's he's quick. He's very very considerate with the equipment. Um, so we enjoyed that. We had a what happened in the race? The well, fan belt. Flicked the fan belt off and it it uh, it overheated, and then uh, I was sharing. Brother John's car, and uh, we we managed to win with that one. But it's, it's nice. The e, an E-Type is is um it's a really really enjoyable car to race. It's a comfortable car, like most most Jaguars are. Um, you can drive one as quickly as you want for an hour and a half, even in a stint, and not feel tired. Um, do that with a Cobra, and you 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 you're battling the car. You know, after half an hour, you, you you're fighting the car. But an E-type, it's you, you sit there, you're comfortable, you're relaxed. It's it's not a it's not a stressful car to drive. It's a very nice, really really good car. For its contemporaries, it's also a very comfortable road car, isn't it? Compared with the other sort of cars that were being made in the early sixties. Absolutely, Jaguar. They they them. were at the top of their game. I think at that time, through through the through the early fifties, through the C-type, the D-type, then the E2A, which is the thing between the D-Type and the E, um, then the E-Type, I think, was just, as, as a road car, an absolute masterpiece. The way the car was engineered, conceived, built, it was it was like a concept car, um, which went into production. Absolutely phenomenal car. Even Enzo Ferrari, he said it was the most beautiful car in the world. And, uh, it showed how motor race, because it, of course it evolved from the D-Type, didn't it, and motor racing. So it was very much a product of motor racing. Yeah, for sure. And the factory the had car. stopped. They had stopped um, racing as a as a works entity. They they built, I think, 
I think the, the, the whole lightweight E-Type programme came out of the E-Type being more successful as a racer than they envisaged because they, when the E-Type was announced, there was a, there was a list, Lofty England had a list of um, selected customers who were going to race the cars and promote the cars without the expense of having a factory team. Um, and that obviously went on to be quite successful, which which then they produced the, the lightweight cars purely as racing cars for customers that wanted them. So yeah, I, 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 I think the factory were really quite smart there in, in understanding that the, the racing did really improve the breed and really improve the, um, the marketing of the cars without them having to put their hands in the pockets too deep. Well, that raises an interesting point, actually, doesn't it, Gary? Because after that start at Alton Park, um, and in fact, in the Autosport report of that event, uh, they talk about you know the the World Sports Car Championship as we would call it now. Um, oh, Ian's, Ian's <laughs> holding the holding the issue aloft. But I mean, actually, also what makes the point Sorry, with Kevin, the, the World Sports Car Championship moving to GT rules for 1962 Britain, and in particular Jaguar, looked in really good shape. They'd beaten the Ferrari at uh, all part of the Ferraris, um, and it and it all looked good. But of course, it didn't really work out like that, did it? Ferrari continued its domination of GT racing uh, into 62 and 63. Really, only when uh, Carroll Shelby got the the Cobra and the Daytona Coupe really working in 64 65 did that that uh, that end so why Ian I'll go to you I'll go to you first what why do you think that the e-type wasn't able to deliver I mean, obviously it did win some races but it didn't win the the big races didn't win the championship Ferrari was quite well ahead why do you think that that was I, I would contend that it delivered as much as any other GT card in 19 car did in 1961 but of course in 1962 there was something called the, the GTO Ferrari that appeared the two of GTO uh, and Jaguar just weren't, Gary's touched on this, Jaguar just weren't able to invest the money that was needed to develop. They produced the lightweight, and Gary can obviously talk much more about this, but the lightweight E-Type, of which there were a few, um, just wasn't on a par with the GTO Ferrari. You've driven both, Gary, so you'll know which is the better racing car. These days, there's no question, it's a, well, you just look at the revival. You know, the, the GTO's not there anymore because they're not, they're not quick enough. They haven't developed the way that the um, the E-types have, or particularly the Cobras. Um, but I think back in period, the the E-types were a bit too unreliable, particularly the engines for long races like Le Mans. Um, they had the aluminium block, but they had this great big heavy five-speed ZF gearbox hanging off the back of it. And uh, one of the one of the Achilles heels there was um, was either the blocks cracking or head gaskets failing mainly because of the, um, the the big weight hanging off the back of the gearbox, uh, hang, the gearbox hanging off the back of the engine, which was putting too, way too much stress through it. But now, do you, the, the way they developed over the years, you've made the point that the, the E-types um, crucify the GTOs. Um, the Cobra is a much more developed car as well. But people don't really develop the GTO, do they, anymore? No, that's the thing. It's, too, it's just too valuable. The, the type of owner... Um, from the GTOs in the last 20, 25 years, they're they're not the racers. You know, there's there's a few people have who have campaigned them, um, and reasonably effectively, um, but they're just they're just too valuable to race, and they and to to develop them to be able to win things like the the, the TT at at, uh, at the revival, you're taking away such a pure expensive car you know it's, it's just not it, it just hasn't happened simply because the, the cars are just too precious and gary would you say in period the have jaguar perhaps didn't want to or wasn't able to perhaps play the homologation game quite as effectively as some of the other i mean ferrari the, you know the gto was perhaps mildly taking the mickey of the rules. The T50 LM was taking the mickey so much that it didn't even get homologated as a GT car. Um, Aston Martin project cars, which I love, by the way, but they're stretching the DB4 GT definition quite a lot. Did did perhaps Jaguar, were they, were they not quite so bold with what they tried to do with the rules? I think you're right, because at, the, at that time, it was an arms race between Ford and Ferrari, really, wasn't it? And that's, that's what the, the, the GT Championship was all about at that time. Um, Jaguars 
did some great stuff with the um, with the Lindner Knocker E type, but that was all privately funded by Peter Lindner. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't the Jaguar factory putting their might behind uh, behind the lightweight E type to try and compete against um, Ferrari and Ford. It was it was down to a couple of wealthy individuals like uh, Lumsden Sargent who had a a standard if you want to call it a standard lightweight E-type, which they damaged heavily at, at the Nürburgring. And then they had Dr. Samir Klatt um, produce this low drag shape and did a lot of work on the engine to produce another lightweight E-type that was capable of running quickly at Le Mans. You know, as a, as a factory effort, uh, I just don't think the funds were there to do it. Probably worth pointing out to people that don't know as well that, that the E-type did finish fourth and fifth at Le Mans overall in 1962, so not... Not exactly a disaster, but of course GTOs were were second and third, and therefore first and second in the in the GT class. Um, but Gary, I just wanted to pick up on something you said just before, which is that obviously the development that the cars have had since then, and uh, the, the the Jaguars and the Cobras in particular, of well, as an example, at the at the Goodwood Revival, um, Nigel Corner and Mark Hales won the very first uh, RAC TT celebration race, and their fastest lap was in the mid one thirties. Uh, which is now the pace of a Lotus Cortina around there, and the quick GT cars are doing 24s and 25s. So, okay, it has been resurfaced, the track, so that's probably a little bit, but where do you think the, the gains have come from? Where where has that development gone? Um, engines massively, in the case of the Cobras, because they're, they're, they're not just Goodwood, but um, you know, the, the historic GT racing that we do now, um, probably with the exception of Donington, which does still reward a good handling car. Some of the quicker circuits, it's it is Formula Cobra. You know, we 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 struggle to be in the top six with a with a good E type, and that's just that's just horsepower. With the E types, we have got a lot more power, particularly in the last three four years than than we have had. But the biggest gains are are through handling. We've 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 worked really hard on the on the suspension on the E types and fine-tuning the torsion bars and the anti-roll bars and dampers and all that sort of stuff but yeah we're always working at it and that's that's the only that's the only place we can we can gain really and the e-types they were homologated with fairly small dunlop brakes so we've got this tiny little brake pad on the front of the e-types which are which are overworked really the cobras have got um a cr girling cr caliper which is what was on the listers in the late 1950s but it's just, it's the same sort of brake which is used even on the prototype cars in the early 60s it was a really really advanced caliper so they've got almost twice the twice the aero brake pad on the front of the front of their cars so they've got another 100 horsepower over us and nearly twice the stopping power so it's, it's difficult to compete, compete with that a lot of circuits john minshaw used to be a, a sight to see on three wheels. I mean, he's the only driver who tended to drive an E-Type on three wheels. Is that because he had the car set up in a particular way compared with the way you or most other front-running E-Type drivers would have it? Yeah, John's super quick. But, um, you know, John's, a lot of people don't know because he is, he is, so, he is so quick in the car and he, he, he's, he's very mobile. But he had an accident a long, long time ago with a tip-to-forklift truck over and lost lower portion of his right leg um so for john um he doesn't have the the feeling to to use the throttle in the you know in the way that most of us do so he's his style of driving is is off the brake and it's and it's straight onto the throttle so i think he prefers a car with a softer rear end setup because he needs the traction otherwise it's too easy for him to you know upset the rear end by um by not having the 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 natural feel finesse for the throttle pedal that uh, that he might have, that's just the way John drives. But he's adapted very well, and he's you know he's he's always got very quick cars, and and he makes the best out of them. Yeah, I, it's just I, I don't remember E types cornering on three wheels in period. And that's it. That's answered the question because it's always intrigued me that. John is the one who wins races, but on three mm. wheels um, at some circuits. Half yeah, the I think that's the, they've, they've, they've obviously developed the, the car around John and his driving style and his needs. And Phil Keane, who's a phenomenal driver, drives with him. Phil can, if he only had three wheels on it, he'd still be quicker than most of the rest of us anyway. So. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? I guess you're in the development, you've had more time 
because you know we've been back at Goodwood for over 20 years you first raced an e-type in the 90s um, there's been much more time and development and set up work on the cars in historic racing than there ever could or would have been uh, back in the day so I guess it's uh, it's kind of makes sense that you would end up going quicker oh for sure and um, uh, there's the will and the and the wherewithal to do it now because uh, it changed the way that people go about historic racing for sure because the amount the amount of money that it generates the desire for wealthy owners to see their cars running up the front with quick contemporary drivers um it's 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 pushed on the development of these cars massively i'd, I'd say the the goodwood revival is is probably the single biggest factor that has pushed on the development of these cars at this rate do you reckon gary each year to be able to find some more performance out of an e-type or has it really plateaued no we're still we're still working um we're still always trying find different brake pad materials just to try and get some some bite on the brakes that will last for an hour around goodwood which isn't too bad because brakes it's not it's not a, it's not a hard circuit on brakes but donnington last week hour and a half around donnington is 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 tough on e-type brakes um, or three hours at Portimao or something like that is, is tough on brakes. So, um, yeah, you're just always trying to optimise or improve what you've got. Um, now, we've invested in a damper dyno um, and we're, we're just running uh, running the dampers all the time, trying different damper setups and valving and things like this, which back in, I don't know, even 15 years ago, you know, most people didn't have damper dynos. You could do all sorts of other things, but um, dampers are a bit of a black art. You, you don't you, you put them on the car and you hope they work, but you don't you don't really know unless you unless you put them on a rig and uh, and get them checked out. So we on the cars we've got now every every car its dampers are checked before every race and then making little adjustments and yeah we we, we found bits and pieces there as well. One of the things that really strikes me about looking at the photos from that Alton Park 61 race actually is how high off the ground the cars look, how soft they must have been, actually how skinny the tyres are. If you compare that, I suppose that's what the Kinrara trophy and the pre-63 cars are, are more like. Um, but it's uh, if you compare a picture of, of, of that race with, say, you know the, the Goodwood or Silverstone Classic races from the last few years, they do, they do look quite significantly different. They do, but they're you know with with the Kinrara is for these these early spec cars um, with their original type straight port heads and and all of this, and um, you touched on earlier about uh, the lap times of the the early TT races, and the leading Kinrara cars are doing those times or slightly quicker. I think we're doing twenty nines last year at the um, at the speed week your, your development race is is, is happening already so uh, the, the pre-63 cars are now as quick as the lightweight e-types were 20 years ago well i wanted to get on to uh, what they're like to drive a little bit more um, and i've never driven one either a race car or a road car so i'm going to throw this one over very quickly so we'll start with we'll start with ian i know you've had a, a selection of fairly interesting road cars over the years and you've still got your 4.2 series one e-type haven't you so what what what's it good at? What's it not so good at? How does it compare to some of the other road cars that you've you've driven? Well, most of the other road cars are Alfa Romeos, so um, people have a view about Alfa Romeos. But just to talk about the, the, the first experience of driving an E-Type on the road happened like this. Um, you, you knew Digby Martland pretty well, who didn't live that far away. And one night we went over to Manchester, and on uh, well, we went to the Chevron factory, and then over to Manchester, um, and. Uh, I think it was in the days when Digby was the works driver for Chevron. Amazing place, the Chevron factory. Anyway, that's another topic altogether. And uh, on the way back, we we turned off uh, onto the M6. Let's say we, Digby was driving. And this was the very latest. I mean, it was a state-of-the-art off the production line, series one and a half E-type, fixed-head coupe. And uh, he turned off the motorway near Rufford where he lived and said, would you like to drive? I couldn't believe it. And I hadn't asked him. I wasn't badgering him saying, could I drive it? I was just impressed by the car. And uh, he let me go on to the M6. So he, he settled up the M6. Um, this was in the days, no, speed limits had just, uh, overall speed limit had just come in, but not everybody took them seriously. 
And what I thought was a straight M6 in any other car, I think I had a Cooper S in those days, um, in fact, was one long corner because we were doing 130, 140 miles an hour with the Elder City beside me. Uh, and it's just an amazing... And this business about... I mean, Gary will have heard this before. When you accelerate an E-Type, you can see the bonnet come up. Um, not one the racing one, but an ordinary road car. And that was happening. Uh, it was just the most amazing experience. And so I, I had to, having gone through the whole business of um, seeing the E-Types in their first race and getting the stuff from the literature from the factory... Uh, I had to have an E-Type, and uh, Malcolm Hamilton, that we hope will come to later on with his uh, V12, uh, I asked him if he could help me find a decent E-Type, and he said, it's got to be a serious one, fixed-head coupe. I'd be interested to hear Gary's views on what the ideal road-going E-Type is, but anyway, it's a serious one, fixed-head coupe. We found one, in fact, he scoured the country, but we eventually found one um, in Winsford, just uh, down the road from Alton Park. Um, and it's, it's sat in the garage or been on the road occasionally ever since. And to drive, well, we talked about how comfortable they are. They are really comfortable cars. Um, I don't drive the car because it attracts attention, but the fact is it does attract attention. Uh, I can remember once driving around near here in um, West Kirby and um, there were a couple of kids play, playing in the streets. I was just driving down it. And this little lad suddenly yelled out, cool, look at that car. Because even children of four or five years old find the E-Type a sensational car to look at. There's nothing like it. I mean, it, it really is um, a, a car that I've had offers to sell the car. And at one time it broke down and the bloke stopped. He said, will you sell it to me? Um, I said, no, 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 it's not for sale. Or the AA are on their way. Um, but uh, it, it, it handles... Once you're accustomed to it, I mean, Gary, it's second nature to Gary, to me, who drives it rather less and doesn't race. Um, it, it's not quite so um, normal, but compared with any other car, it, it is something special. It's it's, it's great long bonnet. Um, it handles very nicely, provided you're ready for it. I mean, mine obviously runs on ordinary road tyres, um, and so you have to be ready to catch it if it can get away from you. Um, if you're not careful, touch wood, it's never happened uh, to me. But uh, it's just a, a lovely, lovely car. And it's probably worth saying that, but, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, probably worth saying that whenever there's a poll or a list of the sort of greatest automotive designs or cars, the E-Type's almost always in the top three, isn't it? I think that the obvious ones are the E-Type, the Mini, and the Porsche 911, probably the three that most regularly crop up near the front but before I asked the next question I've got written down for Gary I'm going to ask him Ian's question because uh, I used to collect model Jaguars including E-Tarts when I was a kid and I always preferred the Series 1 uh, I thought that was the uh, and I always prefer closed cars to open cars so I, I, I would agree with the uh, with the Series 1 fixed head coupe but what about you What, what uh, which version of the E-Tart uh, do you prefer? Well Brother John and I we, we share um, a really early Series 138, Roadster. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful car. But it's still on the really skinny Dunlop RS5 tyres, which are bloody awful. Um, <laughs> if we're going to drive it around, we've, we've got another set of wheels with some better tyres on it when it absolutely transforms the car. Looks fabulous on the old tyres, but uh, on, on the new tyres, it's wonderful. Um, but as, I, as, as the probably the best... Road car for me is probably is yours a fixed head in or a roadster? Fixed head. I'd say what you've got, but a roadster. Fixed head. I like the four two, the engine, the all synchro gearbox, right. slightly better brakes. Ours has got the the the, the three synchro box, the Moss box, which um, which which is all right if you want to select first on the move. You need to double D clutch. Um, so I, I I think that yeah I think the, the the 4.2, the early 4.2 is probably the more sophisticated, more usable road car. Yeah, the, the, the 4.2 is, I think, I mean, this is what Malcolm said, it, it is a more usable car. It ha doesn't have the scalloped or scalloped headlights, does it? It has the proper, proper cowled headlights, which are part of the original shape. And yeah. that's very, very important. Exactly. I, I, that, and that's why I think it's a lovely car. Uh, yeah, Cooper, yeah I, I just prefer GT cars. And... and yeah, I've still got the stuff that I got from Jaguar in 1961. I know the ones at Alton Park were roadsters, but um, the, the shape of the fixed-head coupe is the classic. I mean, the Italians couldn't produce anything as good as that, I don't think. I think the E-Type looks better than a GTO Ferrari. Correct. 
Enzo, he, he was he was a he was a fan of the shape of the G, of the um, the E Type, wasn't he? And he famously said it was uh, he thought it was one of the most beautiful beautiful cars ever made. In, in a shock move, I'm also going to agree with Ian on the uh, on the GT over the roadster front. But uh, this is this is shocking. We should put it in our diary. But um, but on in terms of in terms of driving the E Type, I mean Gary, um, perhaps talk a bit more a little bit about the uh, the race versions. And you've already said you know that it's it's good over a long distance. But how does it compare to say, for example, the, the Jaguar D Type, which it's kind of spawned from that you've obviously raced a great deal as well? And how does it compare to say a GTO, which you've which you've raced against E Types? You traitor! Um, how does it um, how does it compare to those? You can It's very difficult to draw a comparison against a D Type because it's on the sixteen inch, the narrow wheels. Um, the feeling is all very similar between a D and an E, but the D types, um, because it's got the the live rear axle, which was obviously fabulous for somewhere like Le Mans where it's a where it's a smooth surface. Um, anywhere else you need to it's a very it's a very very heavy um, heavy lump the, the the rear axle with the brakes on it. The D type brakes are phenomenal. Even for for today, for a for a mid nineteen fifties car, the disc brakes that are on the D type are just staggeringly good. Um, back in the day, they they because obviously they were development disc brakes then. They they were steel discs with a chrome plating on them, um, so they didn't have the friction that you get now with um, with the cast iron discs, which is obviously what we were on the D types now. The, the 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 brakes are so effective, and you can see why. You know that that was that was a tool for winning Le Mans um, because it's it's a comfortable car to drive. You can drive it quickly for a long period of time without feeling tired, which is what you get with the E-Type. Um, but it, it moves around a lot more. you just got a lot more um, – uh, you've got more ride height with the D-Type, obviously less rubber on the road. Uh, and then you've got this big, this big heavy rear end, which you, which you need to work on for, for traction all the time. The E-Type is, um, as a race car, is a, is a much, much better car. You've got, you've got a lot more grip. Obviously, um, it's got the same, a 3.8 D-Type has got a, um, a, yeah, the, a long nose D, has got a wide angle headed engine. So you've got similar performance to a, um, a semi-lightweight or a lightweight E-Type with a wide angle engine um, but you've got twice as much rubber on the road better with the independent rear end you've got much more traction so the car is much more balanced where a d-type is it's it's a bit of an over it's an oversteering car really because because we run them so stiff at the back um, you have to run them very stiff at the front as well then for um, for the balance of the car so with the d-type when you when you're going quickly the thing is actually it, it's Unless you're at somewhere like Le Mans where you've got the big straights, somewhere like, say, Donington, fantastic round Donington, or even Silverstone um, on the Grand Prix circuit particularly, I do miss the um, the historic veil at Silverstone. Now, we last few years, we've been using the, um, the F1 chicane, which it does it does completely spoil the flow of the bottom end of the circuit for the historic meetings, but we're getting used to it. But, um, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a big loss. But, but these sort of circuits where... When you're on it with a d-type the thing is just it's on the move all the time and you sort of like you 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 turn the car on the brakes before the corner then get on the throttle and drive it through the corner with a bit of oversteer sort of thing whereas e-type is a it's 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 got a lot more grip and you can you can you can some corners like uh, redgate at donnington you can trail break into the corner which is not my normal style with the old cars but it benefits because you can break up the apex and that will help turn the back of the car which you can't do the d-type because because the rear end's stiff and it's an oversteering car so similar sort of traits but the e-type is just more advanced it's better at everything really apart from braking if you if you've got the stopping power of a d-type in an e-type yeah we could we could take it to the cobras a lot more you were exposed at the age of three or four to a lightweight E-Type, Peter Sutcliffe's car. Modern racing lightweight, I mean, a lot of E-Types have been made into virtual lightweights, haven't they? Running to the same spec. But a true lightweight is a very rare car, isn't it? There aren't that many of them around. 
and the one or two that have been taken to ludicrous modification extremes, like the Adrian Newey car, uh, which just seems to be way beyond anything that was built in period. Um, but could, what, what can you compare a, a true lightweight with a, an ordinary E-type as they were in period? Yeah, to to a degree, because the lightweights evolved as well. Because when they when they first came out, they had the um, the the relatively narrow six inch Dunlop wheels, two part wheel. So it was a spun center riveted to a rim, and then fairly quickly um, they went to a, a cast one piece wheel, much wider wheel, Dunlop wheel, <clears throat> and a lot of that came from um, Graham Hill testing. Um, John Coombsy's E-Type, and um, Graham was obviously at that time works BRM driver, which had the cast wide one-piece wheel, um, and I think it was at his request that they that they put those wheels onto the E-Type, and that's how the lightweight E-Types then went to the, you know the, the the bigger arches that they all went to afterwards. So one of the very early Cunningham cars, like we we're quite lucky in that we've got three of the genuine lightweights in the workshop at the moment so they made 12 mm-hmm. one of them was destroyed at Le Mans in period one of the Cunningham cars it, it just did one race and that was it um, so we've we've got one of the Cunningham cars in 5W14WK which has still got the early type wheels on it because it, it then obviously went to America did a bit of racing there and it didn't evolve the way that a lot of the other ones did. And we've got the Sutcliffe car here with us at the moment. And we've got the Linda Nocker low drag, which is probably the, that is a, um, a car which had a, an incredible rebuild actually after the, it, it had that horrendous accident at Montleary. Um, then the car was rebuilt afterwards. They did a phenomenal job of that. that. That is probably the last word or it was before the accident at Montleary the last word in the lightweight E-types because that was the car that had um, Peter Lindner pushing and funding the factory to develop the car for him. So all the work, all the development was done at the Jaguar factory and it was a very effective car in its time. Um, it led the Nürburgring 1000Ks, didn't it, for a lap or two? But that was the head of all the sports racing Ferraris and everything else. Yeah, so the lightweights on their own, they, they did go through a, you know, a, a bit of a, a development curve. So... Quite quite interesting having the the Cunningham car, which hasn't been developed massively in the workshop, and then there's the your end of the scale, the the Linda Nocker car. So it's odd that the way that Ferrari were able to produce something like the the GTO purely for racing, which the lightweight E-Type was, and it was so effective straight away. Whereas the GTO obviously went went on, and they they then went to the 64 GTO, which was then you can see the shape there was starting to become looking like the LM or what the LM would be. Um, but whereas the E-Type, it, it was, it was dragged along really. It's, it's, um, it's development was pushed by um, customers, either customers of Jaguars in the case of Linda Locker or um, Lumsden and Sargent, um, who went their own way with Dr. Samir Klatt to to produce their own low drag car after they damaged theirs very heavily at the Nurburgring, and obviously, obviously Carol from Carol Shelby then did his own thing with the Daytona with the Daytona coupes, which they what do they make of those in? Was it seven or nine of them? Well, yeah. I was going to say six, but it's six or seven. Yes, yeah, not many. Yeah, they're almost more bespoke race cars, aren't they? Whereas the E-Type is much closer to the road. It looks much closer to the, to the road car. But all I was thinking then when Gary was talking about those cars is that the, the, that's a track test, isn't it? We should do the Cunningham car with the last car and put them together. That'd be uh, that'd be great. But uh, so I'm not going to put you on the spot, Gary. It's uh, just one of those uh, one of those dreams. A <laughs> um, thought that's niggling away in the back of my mind is that. Um, the E-Type in the 1960s is similar to the McLaren F1 uh, in the 1990s. They were both road cars that were developed for racing. And the McLaren F1 became the GTR, which was a designed to win Le Mans car. But the original McLaren F1 was, like the E-Type, not built for racing, but it turned into a very effective racing car. Well, and, and, and but then was the, defeated by an increasingly uh, non-road car based sequence of rivals, wasn't it? Um, 
Oh, the Mickey taking Mercedes and Porsches, yes. The, I mean, the, the the Porsche 911 GT1, I mean, what was the similarity with the 911? It sort of made, maybe had headlights that were similar. And then the CLK was, I mean, just a complete, just drove the entire car through the rule book, didn't it? But... Um, but then some of the some of the cars are fantastic. <laughs> it's almost sort of GT and sports car racing has this cyclical thing where um, something triggers a, a, a revival or a, a, you know more manufacturers get interested and then they get serious and they spend money uh, and then they start pushing the boundaries of. I mean, the GT one cars of the late nineties were Group C cars; they weren't road cars. I mean, the Dower car, obviously in nineteen ninety four, was entered as a GT car. But I mean, yeah, the clue is in nine six two is the designation, wasn't it? Um, but but some of these cars were fantastic, but they were taking the Mickey. Yeah, I mean, taking going back to Gary's point about private owners driving the development of the E-Type, that's what happened with the McLaren as well, isn't it? That it was the private owners who lent on Ron Dennis to say and, and Gordon Murray to say we want to have a racing version of of this wonderful road car. That's right, the likes of Ray Bell. Yeah, they they, they did a great job as little privateer teams, didn't they? Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's that's very fair. Um, hadn't really thought of that before, but I can see that see the parallels. Um, but I'm conscious that we've we've stayed very much in the sort of early days of the E Type, the Series One pre sixty six races. But of course, uh, E Types were raced, uh, or later E Types were raced. I mean, as road cars, it got it got bigger and more bloated and less attractive. I think we probably most people would would agree with that. Um, but I thought it was worth mentioning the the Group Forty Four V Twelve E Type uh, that was run in. Uh, Sports Car Club of America competition. Um, Group 44 already had a history with some British Leyland products um, and had the E-Type for 74 and 75, won a lot of races, uh, over 400 brake horsepower from the V12. So I think that would have been something pretty impressive to watch. But um, I'm pleased to say that Ian came up with, uh, before we came on, with a car that I was thinking of, but I thought might be sacrilegious to mention in this company. Uh, and that was Malcolm Hamilton's, uh, I think, 7-litre V12, wasn't it? Was it 7 litres? Yeah. Like like yes, and uh, that's a car that I remember uh, as a kid watching in AMOC Intermark races against the Marsh Plant Aston V8s and later on Richard Chamberlain's Orange 935, which he still races and develops and becomes more and more like a Moby Dick every time it gets burned to a crisp and gets rebuilt again. Um, but um, yeah, Ian, as it was your suggestion, do you want to say a bit more about this this rather special uh, special E-Type? Well, it's partly to get Gary's views on it. I don't know whether he's ever driven it, but um, it, it, to me, it is doesn't pretend to be an authentic E-Type. It's based on an E-Type. It's got a Jaguar engine, but it's got this 7-litre V12 engine in the front of it. But it was just taking the E-Type concept as a racing vehicle rather than as a road car as far as it could possibly go. Uh, and it was phenomenally quick, looked spectacular. Malcolm had grown up with it almost. I mean, he knew how to drive the car. So it fit in like a, a an old sock. You know, it was, it was, it was an amazing sight to see. And uh, it, it was a shame that they got, he had a heavy cr- crash with it, thanks to a Porsche driver at Alton Park, which is where Malcolm lived. I mean, it, it, it was just a very special, it, it has been rebuilt since its crash. Um, but it, to me, it's Malcolm Hamilton V12 E-Type. Gary, what, what, do you have a view on the car? I, I thought it was incredible. Rob, Rob Beer, who did the work on it, he's, he's a friend of mine anyway. But um, but uh, I think I think that was a that was a great bit of kit. I had the uh, the pleasure of being teammate with Jerry Marshall in one of the Marsh Plant Astons for a little while, and uh, to watch watch Jerry. And, uh, and Malcolm going at it was something else. They, 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 well, they'd be going at it on the Friday night or the Saturday night in the bar, <laughs> and then and then going at it the next day in their cars. The next day, it was just it was unbelievable to watch. And um, obviously, Jerry wasn't he wasn't uh, he wasn't the fittest of men, um, and it was towards the end of his career by then. But God, he could still drive. And to watch what he could do in the braking areas without touching the other car next to him was was just wonderful to watch. Well, Gary has a sup of wine. I'll just say that I was a bit of a, a Marsh Plant Aston fan at the time. So against the Jaguars and the Porsches, it was the I was always uh, cheering Jerry or or you on, Gary, as uh, as uh, wanting to win because I was you were brought up on Jaguars. I was brought up on uh, Aston Martin meetings, so uh, I always wanted the Astons to win the Aston Martin race. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Marsh. Um, I've not seen Jeffrey for a few years now, but yeah, he he was a character. He he and 
Jerry, they did a lot of stuff together, didn't they, with the T-70s even, and the Lister Jaguar. Um, <clears throat> but that uh, that Intermark racing was was such good fun because there's basically no rules. And uh, and, and Jeff, Jeffrey Jeffrey is the he was he was the man who was mad enough not to build one Aston Martin, very expensive Aston Martin, to go doing club racing. He 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 built two of them just to try and take on the likes of Malcolm Hamilton. Um, Oh, God, it's wonderful days. But but Jerry, just to spend a bit of time racing with him and, and doing stuff with him, it was it was unbelievable. The guy, he would put everything into a 20-minute race. And at the end of the 20-minute race, it would take him half an hour before he could get out of the car. It was absolutely destroyed, but that was that was everything he put into it. And, oh, God, he, he, was, he was as quick on the first lap as he was on the last lap. But ten minutes later, by the time he'd driven to the paddock, like, you know, he couldn't stand up. Incredible, absolutely incredible, man. Just as an interesting sort of extra postscript to, to that car, we we were fortunate enough to arrange with Jeffrey Marsha a track test of the ultimate evolution of the Marsh Plant Astons, where the engine moved way back, and uh, Anthony Reid did the track test for us. Um, basically, oh, got, I felt uh, so I felt so bad for Jeffrey when Anthony Reid. Smash it into the wall at Goodwood. Yes, that was yes. So he, this, this was uh, that's right. This this test happened before that. You probably won't be surprised to hear, but he, Anthony did uh, basically get out and say this this could this could blow off some GT three cars, uh, and he then did proceed to do that at some races when he did race it for, for Jeffrey and gives you that gives uh, perhaps gives people a, a, a good feeling for how quick those cars were because obviously they were developed in the eighties and nineties and we're talking about. GT3 cars that well I mean they're still being raced now but didn't come about until 2006 so yeah that's a, a form of club racing which um, has died away I guess because of the, the costs involved and the fact you can just go and buy a, a GT3 car from a number of manufacturers probably more cheaply and know it'll work but I always rather enjoyed those crazy no holds but it's almost like Can-Am for club racers. Well, I think we could happily go on talking about uh, E-types and anything that uh, tangentially occurs to us um, probably all, all, all night, but I shall, uh, I shall try and bring it to, a bit to a close. But Ian has given us uh, some further reading, which is always good. We always like that. Um, but I'm also going to encourage people to go and see things for themselves. Obviously, the, the E-type is, is 60 years old this year. There was a, a very successful E-type challenge uh, for the 50th uh, anniversary in 2011, which I think went on beyond, it was so successful, it went on beyond the anniversary year. Um, and there'll be some special races for uh, E-types in various places. The Silverstone Classic being an obvious one, there'll be a couple, couple of races there. Um, so, uh, But to be honest, any major historic meeting, there will be a race with E-types in it, usually in the pre-66 or pre-63. Um, so yes, I implore you to, uh, when you can, get out to a race meeting but but gary when are you next out in a in an e-type next one is going to be um oh back at donnington um yeah the nice Legends historic festival yeah we'll be there there's uh it's the first round of the um the, the jaguar challenge there so um brother and i will be we'll be out there both in our e-types that's been good for business hasn't it for you the jaguar challenge since it as Kevin mentioned, it was the fiftieth anniversary of the site. You've got quite a few cars out of that. Yeah, we have, um, but it's it's a it's a good series as well because you know there are a lot of quick E types about now, and there's a lot of good drivers in E types, so it's it's competitive. So it's good racing. So it's, they're one hour races with a pit stop. So um, actually, brother and I, we we've, we've decided because I think my car is as good as John's car, but because John thinks my car probably should be better. Um, we've decided to share cars, so we've, we've, we're going to swap. Oh. Yeah, so we're going to start the race in our, in our own cars and finish the race in <laughs> in the brothers' cars. Um, just see how that goes. Has your dad's look, dad got an E-type as well? Um, not anymore. He's he's had some fabulous E-types over the years. Um, he's he. He's always been a wheeler dealer, but he's always been um, a finder of important cars when they – there's nothing it's, – it's different now, but back in the, say, the 70s, late 60s, there was nothing more useless than an obsolete racing car. 
and and these cars fell out of fashion didn't they before historic racing started um and because the old man has been such a such an enthusiast um and quite an authority he hasn't got the he hasn't got the like the recall that you've got ian but he he's he's been there for a long time uh, things mm-hmm. that are important he's got tremendous recall on and interesting cars he's he's found some interesting cars over the years um so he at one point owned um what's effectively the the earliest surviving e-type chassis number four which was the first three were development cars and broken up number four was like the press car lofty england's personal car um he owned that at one point in the in the 70s quite a sad old thing by then um he owned incredibly ecd 400 the graham hill winning car from Alton park um that was a car local to northampton he bought that i was telling kevin a little earlier he bought that from somebody um they didn't know what it was it was completely rusty don't tell paul vesti it was completely rusty and he traded it for a Rover 2000 TC and 200 quid in about 1974 really? or five or something. <laughs> um, and it got sold through Paul Skilleter, the Jaguar guy. Um, I think it went to yeah. Robert Danny. Was was he owner of Brandsatch at the time or something? Yeah, it went yes, to Robert Danny and then got restored and, 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 and. But that, that car was completely, um, completely rotten. You could just, you could see through the floor down to the ground and the car was only this was mid 70s the car was only what 13 14 years old uh uncared for and could have disappeared because the old man was racing his xk120 so so he was john metal pearson in the in in the mid 70s and there was john plastic pearson who had his fiberglass bodied xk120 with lola suspension underneath it um and the old man he was quite late to coming racing um, and he was very good at it as soon as he did start. And he won the Vanderbilt Novice Trophy, which is quite a prestigious award at that time. And uh, do you remember a guy called Doug Bassett? In oh, yes. it. Yeah, and Doug, it was between yeah. Doug and the old man um, for the, the Vanderbilt Trophy that year. And uh, they were both racing at Silverstone at the end of the year. And I think Doug went off in qualifying or in one of the heats or something in Formula Ford. So that meant the old man basically just had to finish to, to win the trophy. Um, but then the old man, he then decided that he wanted to get a bit quicker next year. So he bought one of the mod sports E-types, which is the ex Ken Baker E-type that Jackie Oliver oh, was with Ken Baker yeah. at uh, Ransom period, which by that time had, had, had morphed into one of the mod sports E-types at that time with those great big JA PS wheels and all that sort of stuff. Probably still fair to say, though, that um, John Pearson, indeed Pearson Engineering, has uh, done a, a, a big favour to Jaguar fans for uh, finding, saving, selling on, restoring a large number of important Jaguars, not just C-types, of course, uh, over the years, and uh, means that we can go and enjoy uh, enjoy them racing uh, today rather than being left to rust somewhere, which uh, wouldn't be appropriate at all for uh, for an E-type. So, um, yes, I think a, a, perhaps a fitting, a fitting place... Uh, to finish uh, to celebrate 60 years uh, of the Jaguar E-Type so uh, I'd like to finish by saying thank you very much to Ian Titchmarsh and Gary Pearson for joining us uh, and thank you very much to the listeners hope you enjoyed this uh, this, dif- this different and special podcast and uh, we'll be back again soon thank you very much
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is it. This is the year. Enough dreaming about growing my business online. It's time to get serious about selling in my style. As big as I want to grow, because there's nothing I can't do. It's time to get Shopify and take my business to the next level. Whoa, someone's ready to take on the new year. Oh, oh, I thought I was talking to myself there. But heck yeah, 2023 is my year. That's not your average resolution. That's a revolution. It's, it's a, a new, new year's, year's revolution. revolution. Start selling with Shopify to join the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand. From templates that make site design simple to customizations that let you grow at your pace, this is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. That's shopify.com slash free22. Go to shopify.com to start your New Year's revolution today. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.